when an inner child kicks up, you want to put them on your lap, hear what they have to say, and then take their sticky hands off the steering wheel. They're not driving the bus, you are. Hi, I'm Vishen Lakiani, founder of Mind Valley, the school for human transformation. You're listening to the Mind Valley podcast, where we'll be bringing you the greatest teachers and thought leaders on the planet to discuss the world's most powerful ideas in personal growth for mind, body, spirit, and work. Hi, everyone, and welcome to our episode of the Mind Valley podcast with Terry Real. Today, we're going to be talking about Terry and his book, Us Getting Past You and Me to Build a More Loving Relationship. Now, Terry Real is new to the Mind Valley audience, but I got to tell you how I stumbled upon his work. Jeffrey Perlman, he is the, the guy behind our branding program on Mind Valley. It's called Unstoppable Brand. He's also a member of our advisory board and a genius entrepreneur in his own right. He was the former CMO of Zuba. So Jeffrey recommended to me that I read Terry's book. And in Jeffrey's words, he said, this is one of the best relationship books anybody could read. So I asked Jeffrey, well, if if this book is so good, let's go a little bit further. Let's get Terry on the podcast. And that's what happened here. Now, Terry, Terry's book has been a national bestseller. He's a nationally recognized family therapist, author, and teacher over 30 years. But he has just blown up among many people in our industry. Gwyneth Paltrow of Goop, uh, the famous actress, has praised Terry as her favorite relationship therapist. Bradley Cooper has even been quoted as saying that his work is nothing short of miracles. And Terry's written four books. I want to give you a quick overview of his books over here because uh, all four of these books are books which some of you might really want to dive into. But today we're going to focus primarily on the book Us, Getting Past You and Me to Build a More Loving Relationship. So finally, Terry founded the Relationship Life Institute and is often, and often appears in academic journals and media like Good Morning America, ABC News, Oprah, The Today Show, The New York Times, and more. Uh, the Wall Street Journal actually called this book one of the best books of the year. Terry, welcome. Thank you. You are a wonderful, warm uh, host. It's really exciting to be here with you. So, Terry, you know, before all the people are going to be talking about your book, Us, which is which is getting so much uh, praise. And I, when you started talking to me about the other books that you wrote, I just feel compelled to, to ask you to give us an overview of all your books going back to 1997. If you could just tell us about that first book, the second, the third, and the fourth, and then we'll dive into Us, because I want to make sure that our audience knows the full breadth of your work and where they can start with your wisdom. Let's start with your first book from 1997. Yeah, it's called I Don't Want to Talk About It, um, something like Healing the Hidden Epidemic of Male Depression. It was the first book ever written about male depression. Uh, Before that book was out, depression was seen as a woman's disease, which is nonsense. In the book, I say that men experience and express depression differently than women do. That's since uh, over the last 20 years been legitimized. You don't see the depression in a lot of men. Some do. Some experience what I call overt or classic depression, just like women. Uh But a lot of men, you don't see the depression. You see what the man is doing to escape the depression. And a lot of what, uh, what we think of as male difficulties, drinking, womanizing, violence, dominance, difficulty with relationships, not always, but often, I believe, is driven by an inner core of unacknowledged depression. And that unacknowledged depression is itself a form of PTSD. It has to do with the kind of uh, trauma that 
all boys are subject to under patriarchy. All boys are taught to close off their feelings, close off vulnerability, close off connection to others. And one of the things I said is that the price of disconnection is disconnection. And the healing for girls and women, if you read the feminist literature, is about re-empowerment. Their girls lose their voice. The healing for men, I wrote, is about reconnection, hooking up those busted wires between them and their feelings, what we really want. You know, we say, I need socks, but what we really want is I need a hug. Really getting in touch with our, right. with our, with our wants and, and being in touch with others. Men are schooled out of being relational as boys. That's what patriarchy does to us. And it's violent and it's injurious. And so that's where I started. So in I Don't Want to Talk About It, I wrote about what patriarchy does to boys. Uh, What we know from research is uh, that boys shut down their expression of feelings. They still feel it. Little boys feel more strongly than little girls, research tells us. But they stop expressing it by three, four, five years old. And uh, and that is trauma, and that is injury, and it has consequences in adulthood. So um, I began to explain male bad behavior, if you will. And uh, I got calls from around, and people started coming for two days. Couples on the brink of divorce. And we would spend two days together in Boston. At the end of that time, you were either on track or getting a divorce. This was the last stop. And I had great success. I'd say 19 out of 20 couples did really well. They went home with a treatment program. They weren't. But anyway, the the thing I noticed, Vision, is that I broke just about every rule I'd learned in couples therapy school. I took sides. I dealt with grandiosity, with superiority, not just inferiority. I was a person. I was not a blank screen. I was relational. And long story short, I evolved a way of doing therapy that I call relational life therapy. We have a school now. We've trained thousands of therapists from around the world, and it's very exciting. We're also offering classes, uh, uh, online uh, courses for the general public as well. The second book uh, is called How Can I Get Through to You? I'll tell you a funny story. We were on a ski lift and uh, I just finished the first book I don't want to talk about. It took me five years. And uh, we're thinking about the sequel. And my wife says from the from the back of the chair lift, hey, I have the title for your next book. Said, what is it? She said, it's the woman's point of view. I don't effing want to hear about it either. <laughs> but we didn't uh, use that title. Anyway, the second book is about what patriarchy does to relationships. And the third book, The New Rules of Marriage, is really about what I call a relational technology, how to do that, how to actually have. And, and the second book, just so people know, the title is called How Can I Get True to You? Okay? Yes. Closing the Intimacy Gap Between Men and Women. The third book, 2007, is The New Rules of Marriage, a breakthrough program for 21st century relationships. And now this last book, Us, is really, I believe, modestly, the culmination of my 30-plus year career. And it encapsulates everything I've said in the first three books. But really, it's a new map and a new toolkit. It, it really is about how to think of yourself differently as you walk around on the planet Earth, and literally to think of yourself relationally instead of individualistically. And once, and I'll explain all that, but once you shift from thinking individualistically to thinking relationally, everything changes. And there's a whole new set of tools 
that become available that weren't available before. And that's what this is about. So that's interesting. What does that look like moving from thinking about yourself individually to thinking about yourself as a part of a relationship? What does that look and feel like? And is that even healthy in some ways? Well, it's not healthy if you go overboard. Uh, Women uh, have been fighting to stop being so over accommodating to the relationship and to Mm -hmm. find their voices. So a real relationship demands uh, two real people who are speaking the truth to each other. I'm not talking about over accommodation. I'm talking about another level of consciousness. Our relationships are our biospheres. We don't live above them. We live inside of them. And once we realize that everything, see, uh, Jeffrey Perlman, this book is because of Jeffrey. As a branding guy, we were talking one day and he asked me a branding question. He said, what don't you believe in that the rest of the world believes in? And without thinking, I said, the world believes there's such a thing as an individual and I don't. And he said, wow. Yeah. What we know from neurobiology A lot of this book is fueled by the new research in science. We are not freestanding individuals. Our central nervous system co-regulates with other human beings' nervous systems all day long. We are not built to be alone. Uh, I want to say, if you want to look at what being alone does to somebody, look at somebody in solitary confinement. Our central nervous systems go crazy. We co-regulate with each other. This idea of rugged individualism is an idea. It comes from the enlightenment, from a bunch of white, gentry, uh, privileged intellectuals. In the Middle Ages, you didn't think of yourself as an individual. You'd be burned at the stake. So it depends on what part of your brain you're in. So bear with me for a moment. Far below our conscious mind, the autonomic nervous system scans our bodies four times a second. Am I safe? Am I safe? Am I safe? Am I safe? If the answer is yes, I'm safe. We stay seated in what I call the wise adult part of us, prefrontal cortex, the part of us that can stop and think and reason and choose. Well, maybe I don't want to yell at my kid right now. Maybe I want to take a breath and say something different. That's the higher part of our brain talking. That's the part of us that can remember us, that can remember that we're in a relationship. If the autonomic nervous system says, no, I'm not safe, I'm in danger, boom, we go into fight, flight, or fix, fawn, they say. The higher functions of the brain shut down, lower, more primitive parts of the brain take over. It's like I'm being chased by a saber-toothed tiger. And I move into my automatic response that has everything to do with what I learned as a kid about how to cope with my life. The the most important question I ask people to ask is this, as a a therapist, when I'm sitting with a couple, I don't say what's the stress because a good couple can handle stress. I don't say what's the choreography, although that's very important. The more uh, I'll make you a gay couple, the more vision uh, pursues, the more Dan uh, distances and the more Dan distances, the more vision pursues. Very. The most important question is this. Which part of you am I speaking to? Am I speaking to the adult present based here and now thoughtful part or am I speaking to some trauma triggered flooded part that's very young in you and very automatic and the adaptive child? Well, okay, so there's a wise adult way back in the amygdala. There's the very reactive wounded child. That's the famous part that trauma work always deals with. The part of us that's very young just wants to cry and fall on someone's lap. 
Between these two is what I call the adaptive child. This is the you that you created when dealing with whatever you were dealing with. The adaptive child is a kid's version of an adult. It looks like an adult, but it's not. It's rigid. It's black and white. It's compulsive. It's automatic. You do the same damn thing every time. And in our work, in RLT, first, the three phases to it. First, we confront the repeated thing that the adaptive child part of you keeps doing over and over again. We call it your relational stance. So for example, angry pursuit is a dysfunctional stance. You will never get Dan to be closer to you by complaining angrily about how he's not close to you. That is not going to work. So first you look at what you're doing that's or, or, or more but precisely what the adaptive child part of you learned to do that you keep repeating. Then we go back to your childhood. We do trauma work. Where, who were you adapting to? Where did you learn that? And then finally, we do skill building. Let me teach you how to do this differently. So the core skill in learning to live relationally, which is what this is all about, living a relational life, is what I call relational mindfulness. It's really bringing the spiritual practice of mindfulness to our relationship. In this heated moment, am I going to go with my knee-jerk fight, flight, or fix? Or am I going to take a breath, maybe take a break? I'm a big fan of take a walk around the block. Get re-centered. I call it remembering love. Remember that the person I'm speaking to is someone I care about. And the reason why I'm speaking is to make things better. There, when I'm in that adult place, now I can go try and fix my relationship. But the first skill is getting out of all that reactivity into the adult place that wants to make things better to uh, begin with. May I illustrate with a story? Yes, absolutely. Okay. I I love to tell stories. This is an absolutely true story. One of the first stories in the book. Guy comes to me on the brink of divorce, chronic liar. That's why his wife wants to leave. Lies about everything. And he's one of these guys, for the therapists listening, you'll, you'll know this guy. Uh, you say to this guy, the sky's blue. And he says, well, it's aquamarine. I wouldn't call it, you know, he's not going to give it to me, right? I mean, God forbid, you just say blue. So I have this guy's number. What's his relational stance? What's his adaptive child do over and over again? This man takes me five minutes, has a black belt in evasion. Okay, he's an evader. I then ask a relational question. If you're not thinking relationally, it sounds brilliant, but Tell me the thumbprint, and I'll tell you about the thumb. So if he learned to evade, who was he evading? So I say to him, who tried to control you growing up? Sure enough, his father, military man, how he sat, how he ate, his friends. I I said to him, how did you deal with this controlling father? He looks at me and he smiles. Now, that smile is important. That's That's the force of resistance. He looks at me and smiles, and he says, I lied. Dad said, don't be friends with Henry. I was friends with Henry. I told him I was friends with John. Smart little boy. I always teach my students, Vision, be respectful of the exquisite intelligence of that adaptive child. You did back then exactly what you needed to do. Smart boy. But I have a saying, adaptive then, maladaptive now. You're not that four-year-old boy. Your wife is not your father. Why don't you try a different move? That's it. This is a true story. They come back two weeks later, hand in hand, all smiles, and they say, we're done. We're done therapy. We're cured. And they were. It's a one-session cure. I said, okay, there's a story. Tell me the story. Over the weekend, the wife sent him to the grocery store to get, say, 12 things. And true to form, he shows up with 11. The wife says to him, where's the pumpernickel? And he says, every 
muscle and nerve in my body was screaming to protect myself and say to her they were out of pumpernickel. And in this one moment, I took a breath. I thought of you. He borrowed my brain for a moment. And we do that. I thought of you. I looked my wife in the eye and I said, I forgot the damn pumpernickel. And she, true story, she burst into tears. And she said to this man, I've been waiting for this moment for 25 years. That's recovery. That's what we're looking for. Wow. How does one understand what is their adaptive child and what BS their adaptive child is churning out? Well, I ask people to, this is all in the book. I ask people to look at five losing strategies that are the agenda of the adaptive child part of you. The bitter pill is the adaptive child part of us does not want to use relational skills. Doesn't give a damn. The adaptive child part of us doesn't particularly want to be intimate. It's scary. The adaptive child part of us is you versus me. One win, one loses. It's primitive. It's a power struggle. It's me, 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 I, I. And and Terry, is is the adaptive child similar to the inner child? Is that the same thing? There are two inner children. Actually, there are three. There's the adaptive child, which is the you that you created. You know, I'm a fixer, I'm a fleer, I'm a fighter. Uh, there's the wounded child, which is just the the very young part of you that was on the receiving end of it, that just tends to be overwhelmed and flooded. And then there's what we call the natural child, the you, the creative, playful you that got squashed by all this trauma and adaptation. So there are a lot of inner kids floating around in there. Okay, so that's the adaptive child, the wounded child, and the natural child. Got it. So in your book, you say maturity comes when we tend to our inner children and don't inflict them on our partners to care for. I love that quote. How do we tend for our inner children? I'll tell you a story. I I like to tell stories. So this is from Robert Bly, the the great poet and and men's leader from a million years ago. He is his story. Uh, And I tell this story to people about what inner child work looks like. He uh, was having a 60th birthday party. He's, he's much older now. And uh, Robert grew up in an alcoholic, violent uh, home. He had a lot of trauma and a lot of neglect. It was not a happy childhood. So he's getting ready. His wife is throwing him a 60th birthday. And he's doing that typical male thing. I don't know if you can relate to this, but where's my socks? God damn it. How come I can't? I got, we have got a million people to, helping us, and I can't even get it. It's my birthday. I can't, and he's like, he's just being a dick. He's being real pissy. But he's committed to working on himself. He's not, you know, that's what I call first consciousness. He's committed to second consciousness, to looking at what's going on. So he sits down. He goes to the bathroom, sits down, and looks into himself and says, okay, what, what's going on here? Why are, you, why are you being such a jerk? And what floats up to him, he says in this story, is him at six, little six-year-old Robert. And he's pissed. And this little six-year-old boy says, sure, you get a birthday party at 60. You're an old man. Who gives a shit about, I'm the one that should have had the hats and the cakes and the, I'm six. I should have had the birthday party. No one gave me a goddamn birthday party. And Bly tells this story. He says, he turned to that six-year-old. He said, listen, I'll tell you what, you stick with me. This party's for you. All those other people out there, fuck them. That's inner child work. You form a relationship with these immature states of being. You put your arms around them, you love them, and you demote them. One of the things I say, Vision, is when an inner child kicks up, you want to put them on your lap, put your arms around them, love them, listen to them, hear what they have to say, and then take their sticky hands off the steering wheel. They're not driving the bus, you are. You in the backseat. And literally, I must say this three times a week with people, if I'm having a fight with my wife, Belinda, 
I literally take little Terry. I've got a composite. He's about eight. And he sits behind me, holds my shirt. And I have a deal with him. My part of the deal is that angry blast coming at us stops with me, my big body, my adults. You are completely protected then. Your part of the deal is you let me deal with Belinda. Don't you try and deal with her. You'll make a mess of it. I can do it better than you. So it's our job to form a relationship with, to to put our arms around those inner kids in us who are hurt, angry, abandoned, scared, reactive, whatever they are, put our arms around them, tend to them, love them, and demote them. They are not running our relationships. We, the adult, are running our relationships. I love that. And as I'm listening to you, I'm beginning to recognize some inner child patterns in myself that I know I need to heal. So with me, it's not feeling understood, right? Like like I remember growing up, I, I went to a, a high school in Malaysia. I grew up in Malaysia, very strict. And I remember being accused of getting into a fight with another boy. And I did not get into a fight. The damn principal just refused to believe me. My parents got involved and then my mom didn't believe me. And I tried to explain, I was not fighting with this guy, but I felt not believed. I felt not understood. And I realized that even today in the world, I don't feel understood. I don't feel understood by the press. I don't feel understood by uh, my team. Um, This idea, people don't understand me, often comes up, except for my closest friends, whom I can be intimate with. This this thing comes up and I'm beginning to realize, and it came up again recently today, but I'm beginning to realize that this is coming from some, some inner child stuff that I need to clear. That's brilliant. That's what happens, of course. We people our world with players who yeah. replicate the early childhood wound. Yeah, them. you know, yeah, because you know what, what happened to me today? And I'm, I'm but, but tell me if you think this is an inner child thing, if this is something I need to clear, or if this is really a, a really a legitimate situation of not being understood. So uh, today, Vice, Vice News Media did a documentary on one of my festivals. And it was overall a really good documentary. But there was one part where the Vice team sat down with me uh, to to interview me. And I was busy. I was super busy. And I was very stern with them. I'm like, guys, I only have 25 minutes. And I was very pointed with the question. And the reporter at Vice said, made a comment. She's like, everyone here is so positive, but this guy is really negative and he's the founder. What Vice didn't know is that when I was giving them the interview, I had a sick child. This was in Amman, Jordan. And my mm-hmm. child had gone into the desert with his grandmother and he collapsed and he ended up in hospital. And so I, my mind wasn't on the interview. I was negative because if you're a parent and you have a sick child, my child was in hospital the night before. And I, as soon as the interview was done, I had to go and I was by his bedside with doctors for two hours. But of course, the, I didn't say that in the interview. And so this thing came out making me look like I'm mean and I'm an asshole and I'm, I'm a grumpy person to interview. Um, so again, this feeling, fuck, I don't feel understood. But is this my inner child? You want to do a minute? Yeah. All right. Put down your cup and close your eyes. Mm-hmm. Okay. I want you to get um, centered in the feeling of I'm not being understood, that unfair feeling of being alone and yeah. not misunderstood. You feel yeah. that feeling? Where, where is it in your body? It's right here. It's it's just okay. it's in my rib cage. What what's the physical sensation? Tightness. Yeah. If that it's tightness tight. in your chest could speak, what would that tightness say? Get out of your head and let the tightness speak. What would the tightness People, say? People, people don't understand you. People are judgmental. People are quick to pass judgment. People don't bother to get to know you or understand you. You're a good person, but people refuse to see that. And how do you feel about that? I feel that's true. I go back to situations in high school. Whoa, 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 whoa. That's what you think. How do you feel? 
people are not going to understand you. People don't don't care enough. I, I I feel that in the wider world, in the wider world, this is generally true. Okay. All right. You, you, so you feel mistrust. And how old are you in that feeling in your chest? Go back 13. to the early. That incident happened when I was 13. With the fighting. Yeah. Uh-huh. I'll tell you what. Uh, are you okay to keep doing this? You want to stop? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, no, no. This is interesting. This is interesting. Okay. And the audience is All saying right. they love the vulnerability. Okay, listen. Uh, you, you're doing a beautiful job for everybody listening right now. Uh, I want you to go down into the cavity of your body in your mind's eye and connect with that 13-year-old misunderstood boy. He lives inside of you. He's in there somewhere. Yeah. Tell me when you got him. I got him. What's he look like? That's me at 13. Yeah. Geeky, big glasses, uh -huh. big hair, pimply face, but uh -huh. good kid. Kind of cute, awkward. Yeah. And, and how do you feel as you look at him? I love him. Like, I, 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 I love this kid. Uh -huh. He's been through so much. Yeah. Ask him if you would. We're just going to do a minute of this, but ask him if he would come up out of your body and sit in an imaginary chair facing you so you could talk to him. Ask him out loud. I see a chair in front of me. I'm asking him right now, and he says yes. And he's in the chair? And he's, he's on the chair, yeah. And how do you feel as you look at him on the chair? I adore this kid. Yeah. Tell him. I adore him you. I absolutely freaking adore you. And how does he respond to that? He's smiling. Ask him if he could to put that smile into words. He may not be able to, but ask him. Can you put that smile into words? And what's he's he saying say? yes. He's saying yes. And what's that smile say? What he's saying is that he's really happy at the person he has become and the opportunity to travel and see the world, stuff that a little 13-year-old boy in Malaysia never dreamed would be possible. He's happy. He's proud of you. Yeah. And how does it feel for you to get that from him? It feels good. It feels good. Like I feel like I'm talking to a younger brother. I'm, I feel like I'm facing a younger brother. Yeah. Tell him that. I feel like you're my younger brother. I feel like you're my younger brother. What do you want to say to him? What do you think he needs to hear from you? It doesn't matter if mom didn't believe you. You see, what, what's hurting is that when we got back from school, my mom didn't believe me. Yeah, tell him. And, I, and, I, and I, re I remember that scene vividly. You were watching TV. You were watching TV and mom came up and mom said, why did you lie to me? And you said, I didn't lie. I seriously was not in a fight. And mom said, well, the headmistress said you were. And then mom cried because mom was sure that you were lying to her and mom disappeared into a room. And that really stung. And I, I get that. I remember that memory. And that memory is it's crazy how that little thing has affected me. Now, what does yeah. that 13 year old need from you? You're with them. What do you have to tell them? Trust, belief, and love. That's what that 13 year old needs from me. And he says, how does he respond to that? He says, I'm happy you believe me. Wow. And what's it like for you to hear him say that to you? It's, it's great. It's great. I, I feel he's happy. If he's happy, then I'm happy. I feel like I'm talking to a little brother or a son. Yeah. I, I want you to tell him if it's true for you. Don't say it if it's not true. But do you feel big enough and strong enough to take care of this little misunderstood 13-year-old boy? I do. I feel big enough and strong enough to take care of you. Tell him I will take care of you. I will take care of you. Tell him, you don't have to be alone anymore. You don't have to be alone anymore. I'm here now. I'm here now. And how does he respond? 
he's beaming and, and he's coming up and hugging me. Yeah. I feel him right. Close your eyes and put him on your lap and put your arms around him and give him a hug and feel that. I feel and, that. And feel him feeling that. Oh, there you go. Envision just between the two of you. Say something silently, just for him, just between the two of them. Something he wants, you need to hear. I did. And is there anything more you want to say to him right now? There are lots of opportunities to talk no, to each other. I, I feel that. I feel that. There's some forgiving that I think me and him need to do as well. But I feel that. I feel that that closeness, that love. Um, one last thing. Shrink him down into the palms of your hands and bring mm-hmm. your hands up into your heart and bring him into your heart where he can rest. And thank him for joining us. How does that feel? Beautiful. Yeah, that was a beautiful process, Terry. Thank you. It was beautiful for everybody watching you. I love it when a leader has the courage to be vulnerable and do its own work. Thank you. So, and, and I hope I, I, I hope everyone watching the podcast, listening to the podcast, understood what happened there and maybe got a couple of lessons and a practice that maybe you can try on your own because I want to make this valuable to all of you. Yeah. So, you know what? Next time... Um, uh, somebody writes something about you that just ain't true or gets you wrong, I want you to remember you're not feeling misunderstood. That 13-year-old. Who right, right. I see what you mean. I see what you mean. That's beautiful, Terry. That's amazing. And then ask him to come forward when he's feeling hurt and put your arms around him and tend to him a little bit. Wow. I love that protocol. It takes the sting out of what the external stimulant is. Yeah, yeah. I love that. And um, going back to your book, Terry, there's a quote from your book, maturity comes when we tend to our inner child and don't inflict them on our partners to care for. I I see the deep meaning in that quote right now. Yeah. See, if that 13-year-old boy grabbed the wheel, you know, a a former you anyway, might have dashed off an angry letter to uh, how dare you? You, What you didn't know when you were interviewing me was my kid was sick and blah, blah, blah. And and that wouldn't be you writing that letter. That would be that angry little 13-year-old boy. But now, next time you feel triggered like that, you take a breath, you ask that 13-year-old to step back a little bit, give you a little air and daylight, and you say, okay, kid, talk to me. What, what, what's mm. it like for you to have this this organization, right? This whole thing in public about, about what? Tell me what that. What, what are you feeling right now? And you write a letter to yourself and not to those people outside. Terry, I love that. Thank you so much. This was such a powerful, powerful lesson today. For everyone listening to this podcast, go ahead, follow Terry. As you can see, this man is a gem. Follow Terry on Instagram at real. Terry Real. That's R-E-A-L. Terry, T-E-R-R-Y. Real, R-E-A-L. And on Terry's Instagram, the second post is uh, the cover of this book. So you can learn about the book and know where to get it from. Us, getting past you and me to build a more loving relationship. You can also learn about all of Terry's other books on Amazon, The New Rules of Marriage, How Can I Get True to You, and the book on male depression. I don't want to talk about it. All of Terry's books are available on Amazon. And definitely follow this amazing, amazing man on Instagram. Uh, Terry, thank you. You've been a blessing in my life today. Oh, Vision, what a joy. I've been waiting for this interview with you, and it, it, it delivered everything that I wanted. So uh, it's, a, it's wonderful to meet you, and uh, 
uh, I, I'm sure our paths will cross again. Thank you. Absolutely. But, Absolutely. Uh, you too. I, and I said something to you in private, I want to say it in public, which is I, uh, I really want to celebrate the good work you're doing in the world with all of this. You are a part of the solution, not the problem. And uh, man, that feels good. So I just want to celebrate. Thank you, Terry. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us. Uh, Terry, we will hopefully see you in a future episode of the Mind Valley Podcast. And I want you guys to know that this is one of our last podcast episodes in this format. Our podcast is now shifting to real-world studio recordings. So Terry, the next time I interview you, it'll likely be in a studio in Boston or New York. I filmed, this is my fourth podcast recording of today. This is the only one on Zoom. All the other recordings were done here in a studio in Dubai. So going forward, you'll not just be able to listen to the Mind Valley podcast, but we'll be launching it as a free video channel on YouTube. And um, I think you guys are going to really love, love what you see coming up. Thank you, Terry. Thank you all of us for joining. And I'll see you in the next episode of the Mind Valley podcast. <laughs>